You are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. We are currently working through a series called Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text pokes and prods us with the question, Will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before the King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to continue on in our series in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you would grab your Bibles and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to work through the whole chapter this morning, verse 1 through verse 29. 1 Samuel chapter 23, starting in verse 1, hear the word of God. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the, enemy, against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come down to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand." And David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horash. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. And the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill country of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? 
Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure, know and see that the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and all his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an. Saul went on the one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for this chapter and the encouragement that we find in it. And we pray in this moment as we're gathered together with your word opened up in front of us that you would do a deep work of encouragement in our hearts. Father, we confess that we don't just need a pat on the back or a friendly gesture. We need your word applied to our hearts. We need real and deep encouragement, and we know that you can do this. And so we pray, would you use this chapter towards that end? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems as you study the Bible and work your way through it, that the pivotal points in the storyline of the Bible often take place in the wilderness. And so after the Exodus account, where did the Lord bring his people Israel? Well, he brought them into the wilderness, and that's where they were for some time. Or when you look at Jesus' ministry, after Jesus was baptized, he was thrust out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And as we follow David's journey, as we follow David's life, where do we find David in chapter 23? We find him in the wilderness. And it seems as we study God's book that the wilderness is God's favorite place to bring his people This is where God brings his people. This is where he brought Israel. This is where he brought Jesus. This is where he brings David. And there's always a reason. There's always a rationale to why the Lord does this with his people in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of testing. This is what happened in the Exodus story. In the wilderness, God tested his people. They lacked food. They lacked water. They were harassed by enemies. And as readers, as we read the story, we ask, will Israel serve the Lord? Will they look to the Lord or will they look somewhere else? And then we follow the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes out into the wilderness and he he lacks food. And there in the wilderness, he meets the tempter himself. He is tempted and tried in the wilderness. And as we read Jesus' story, we're meant to ask this question. Is Jesus going to remain faithful to his father? Or is he going to turn away and succumb to temptation? And so here is David, and he is in the wilderness, and this will be a place of testing for David as well. And we ought to ask as we read David's story in the wilderness, will David wait on the Lord? 
Or will he begin to take matters into his own hands? And as we look ahead in chapter 24 and chapter 25 and chapter 26, that will be the theme of the story in the wilderness, and we're going to look at that next week. But the wilderness is also a place of provision where God meets his people with gifts. And this is what happened in the Exodus story. So there in the wilderness, hard and barren, there was neither food nor water. What did the Lord do? He provided for his people. He made bread fall from the heavens, and he brought water out of a, out of a rock. And so there in the wilderness, Israel met the grace of God, and the grace of God shone forth before them brilliantly and clearly. And Israel, in the midst of the wilderness, learned a lesson. The wilderness became Israel's teacher and instructor in faith, teaching them that the Lord and the Lord alone is their provider. And this is what we're going to find happening in the text that we just read, chapter 23. God is going to meet David in the wilderness, and God is going to magnify his gifts in David's presence so that David would learn a lesson that the Lord and the Lord alone is his provider. What's really interesting is this was the lesson that David did learn. This was something that he, he really did see of God. Some years later, David wrote Psalm 54, and in Psalm 54, David is reflecting upon the events that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 23. And so David wrote this song for congregational worship, and this is what he tells the people of God to sing. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. The wilderness did instruct David. And here's the thing. As we study chapter 23, if God comes and helps us, David's wilderness experience will become our instructor, and we will be able to say with David, singing his song, Behold, the Lord, the Lord is my helper. He is the upholder of my very life. So the first thing we need to do this morning is we need to try to wrap our arms around chapter 23, try to get a, a sense of what this chapter is about. And so I'm going to offer you a summary. The story all begins with a report. Apparently, David had spies and messengers throughout the land of Israel. And so messengers come to David, and they tell him that Philistines are raiding a certain city on, on the border between Israel and the Philistine territory. Keilah. And so David goes and he speaks with the Lord seeking direction and, and the Lord gives him orders. Verse 2, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So David goes and he gives his men the directions. We're going to go to Keilah and strike the city. But David's men are not happy with this order. It doesn't make sense to them. Why, David, would we go to Keilah and fight against the Philistines? We already have enemies. We have Saul. Why would we want to, to stir up the Philistines to be against us too? One hornet's nest is already upset. Why upset another hornet's nest and have all of these people chasing us around? But David goes and he consults with the Lord again, and the Lord tells him to go. And so in obedience, David goes and he saves Keilah. And here we get this beautiful picture, David as a fugitive, David on the run, his heart throbs and beats for the salvation of God's people. Here is Israel's Savior. And so the city is liberated, the Philistines have been repelled, but David doesn't get to celebrate for very long. He doesn't get to bask in the glow of salvation. Abiathar comes and he finds David we met him last week in the text, and he tells David the news about the slaughter that happened at Nob. 
And here in chapter 23, we get this shocking revelation. While David was saving and liberating Keilah, at the very same time, it seems, simultaneously, Doeg the Edomite, sent from Saul, was striking down the people of God at Nob. Happening at the same time, David is saving and Saul is slaying. And we get this picture. And so David receives this news from Abiathar, and surely David's hairs were standing on end as all of this settled in upon him. And verse 9 puts it in a very understated way. The text says, And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And so what does David do? Well, he consults the Lord, and he does it through the ephod this time that Abiathar brought with him. So the ephod was this priestly instrument that the will of the Lord would be revealed and discerned through. And so through the ephod, the Lord reveals that, yes, Saul is coming down to strike David, and that, yes, the residents of Keilah will hand David over to Saul. So David quickly and wisely flees the walled city and heads off into the deep wilderness. And as we read the story, we see that is a very good thing because Saul was licking his chops. He thought he had David captured in the city like a, like a bird in a cage. And so as we think about all of this, as the chapter carries us on, David must have been really hurting at this point. David, he's, he's constantly on the run. He's being chased by Saul. He's being hunted. He's betrayed by the, the very city that he came and brought salvation to. But in the midst of this discouragement, David finds an oasis. He finds Jonathan. And this will be their last meeting together, the last time Jonathan and David speak. And what Jonathan does is he comes to David in the midst of the wilderness and he speaks words of grace into David's heart. And the text puts it like this in verse 16. He strengthened his hand in God. That's the jewel in the midst of chapter 23. Jonathan comes and strengthens David's hand in God. And as we think about this chapter, David needed this grace. Not that grace is ever unneeded, but what I mean is that this grace came at the exact right time, at the exact right moment for David. Because David was just betrayed by the people he saved, and he will soon again be betrayed by another people. And so David is in the area of Ziph now. And the inhabitants there, the Ziphites, begin to inform Saul about David. And they're playing this part of a, a spy, watching where he's going, seeing who's with him, what he is up to, the places where he stays, and their various hideouts. And the Ziphites bring all of this precious information back to Saul. And the text doesn't tell us what motivated these Ziphites to betray David. Perhaps they were afraid. They didn't want to encounter the rage of Saul. They didn't want to be the next knob. They didn't want their city to be on the highlights of Israel's newspapers. Saul does it again. Or maybe it was a matter of gain for these people. If we betray David, we will gain Saul's favor, and then Saul will bring rewards and all sorts of good things to us. Whatever it was, these kinsmen of David, they were likely Judahites of David's very own blood, they served David up on a silver platter to Saul. And so what happens next is a matter of high drama. David is continuing his wilderness wandering, and he's moving from Horesh to Ma'an. And then Saul, with the help of all of this intelligence from his spies, the Ziphites, is hot on the scent of David. 
And so the story moves us to this particular scene, this particular place, a mountain. On the one side, David is hurrying and scurrying, fleeing Saul. And then on the other side of the mountain, Saul is, is moving. And as you study the Hebrew verbs, it seems that, that Saul is splitting up his forces and he's trying to do this pincer-like movement. And so David is fleeing and Saul is dividing his men and they're, they're moving around intending to, to pinch David. And so as you read the story, the text tells us that, the, that Saul has the upper hand at this point, that he's going to pinch David off and he will have nowhere to run. And it finally seems that after all this while, Saul has David, dead to rights. But in the midst of all of this pursuit, a messenger comes. That's how the chapter began and that's how the chapter ends. A messenger comes telling news about the Philistines. Saul, Philistines are raiding the land of Israel. And because of this piece of news, Saul gives up the chase and has to leave David behind and go deal with the Philistines. And David is saved. And so pivotal was this moment for David, in fact, for all of Israel, that this place was given a name. We see it in the text. It's called the Rock of Escape, as the ESV translates it, or it can be translated the Rock of Divisions. So this place was remembered by Israel. It was a memorial in Israel throughout their generations as the place where David escaped Saul, where Yahweh brought his salvation for David. So there we have a summary of the chapter, and we can take a step back from it, trying to get our bearings. There's a lot of action in this chapter. It's fast and furious. There's no time to take a breath. Everything is happening fast. There's a lot of geography in this chapter. If you're trying to follow it on a map, it's kind of difficult as David is hurrying and scurrying around Israel. There's a lot of troubles and the troubles that David experiences are extreme and grievous. He's betrayed by the city he saved. Then he's betrayed by the Ziphites again in a short matter of time. But as we look at all of this going on in chapter 23, there is a theme that unites the whole chapter, and the theme is the Lord himself. In every circumstance, in every place, in every trouble, the Lord comes and he meets David with his gifts. That's what happens in chapter 23. What I want to do is I want to slow down and I want to focus our attention upon the gifts that the Lord brings to David because there's three gifts that David finds in chapter 23. So the first gift is this. David finds the wisdom of God. So chapter 23 is rather remarkable for all the God talk that we find in it. Rightly and appropriately, the name of the Lord is used in connection with David. Again and again, we hear the name of the Lord in connection with David. But David isn't the only character who uses the name of the Lord. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Saul uses the name of the Lord. So Saul has learned that David is in the city of Keilah. And then Saul says this. He's, he's happy. He's rejoicing. God has given him into my hands. Verse 7 is worth our thinking. It's worth our reflection. So Saul is reading this situation, and he's doing a bit of mental math in his head, and we can just follow the mental math along. It starts with this. David, he's my enemy. David, he's in this precarious spot. He's in the city of Kelilah. He's in this walled city. There's no escape. And if I can just get my forces around that city, I can besiege it, and he cannot run away from me. What does this mean? It means David is mine, and that is so good. That is what I want more than anything else, a dead David. 
And so what does this mean? It means this, Saul, God has given David into my hand. What's going on here? Well, Saul truly believes he knows what God is doing. He truly believes that God is going to hand David over to him. Verse 7, God has given David into my hand. What are we to think about Saul's language about God? We can say two things. First, we can say that Saul is delusional. He's out of his mind. He thinks he has wisdom. He thinks he has understanding of God and what God is doing, but he doesn't, and the text makes it plain to us because Saul can never touch David. He can never get his hand on him. He's delusional. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Second, and even worse, Saul is full of presumption. What's Saul doing? He's looking at all of these factors. He's adding them up in his head. And as he adds them up in his head, he is making this this movement from all of these factors as he added them up. This plus this plus this equals this. God has given him into my hand. I know what Yahweh is up to. I know the mind of the Lord in this. What's interesting is what the text does. The text makes a contrast. It shows us Saul speaking of the Lord in verse 7. And then the text sets before us, David, and we have to pay attention to this contrast. Because when we look at David, we don't find any of this delusion or any of this presumption. What does David do in the chapter? Well, he does the same thing over and over and over again. He seeks the face of the Lord. He calls for wisdom. He calls for understanding, direction, insight. And so we see it in the text. David gets news about what's happening in Keilah. So what does David do? He calls on the Lord, verse 2. Shall I go and attack these Philistines? David's men aren't happy with David's directions. And so what does David do? He again goes to the Lord in verse 4. David hears that that Saul is coming and there's this possibility of treason, that the city of Keilah, that they might hand him over to Saul. And so what does David do? He calls for the ephod because he wants to consult with the Lord. Verse 11. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. That last line should be read with some pathos. O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. David is going to the Lord again and again and again. And we ask, well, what does the Lord do in each one of these circumstances? The Lord graciously meets David with his gifts, particularly the gift of wisdom. The Lord meets David with insight, understanding, direction, and knowledge. When David calls on him, there's this pattern. David calls upon the Lord, and the Lord answers him. And it happens that way every single time. We're getting this picture in the text that the Lord makes himself available for David. David calls, Yahweh answers. David receives the gift of wisdom, and God graciously gives it. There's a second gift, and it's gift of providence. And so providence is one of those big theological words, but it's really simple to understand. We can describe providence as this, God orders everything. And this should make solid sense to us as Christians. We believe that God is the creator of everything, And we believe that God is the king over everything that he has made. And so if God made everything and he rules over everything, that means God does whatever he wills, whatever he wants, with the things that he made. And so we see providence at work in verse 14. It's plainly stated. 
the text says, And Saul sought David every day, but God did not give David into his hands. We need to make a connection here. Why did Saul fail in all of this? Was it due to his own stupidity? Was it, was it due to, to poor soldiering? Was it due to David's brilliance and craftiness? Was it due to the weather conditions and the difficult terrain? Why? Well, surely all of those play a factor, but where the Bible points us is not any of those things, but ultimately the providence of God. Saul was seeking David, and why didn't Saul get David? Because God didn't give him into his hands. So the Bible is pointing us to God, the God who rules over Saul, over David, the weather, the earth. So Saul failed, and he continually failed because the Lord would not let him succeed. The Lord decreed, using all matter at his disposal, that Saul's efforts would fall flat to the ground. And what's amazing in our text is that just not a theological truth floating up here, but we actually see it at play in the text. Just look at the end of the chapter. So David is fleeing on the one side of the mountain, and, and it seems that Saul's forces are, are splitting up, and they're closing in on David. There's this pincer-like movement. They're moving around the mountain. David is fleeing, and, and Saul and his men are getting in position to, to pinch him off where he can't escape. And we as readers are starting to flinch, get uneasy. It seems that Saul's going to have David, but then a messenger comes. The Philistines are attacking. You have to leave Saul. And we ask his readers, well, what is this all about? Is this, is this luck? Is it good timing? Is it good fortune? No, but as readers, we, we read verse 14. God did not give David into his hands. And we say this is the work of God. This is what Yahweh, the sovereign king, does. He is orchestrating all things, whether it's the movement of these godless Philistines, whether it's the arrival and the timing of a messenger, whether it's the telling of news, whether it's the very functioning of Saul's very own heart, all of it is under the control of Yahweh, and God, Yahweh is turning all of these things for David. So what do we see in the wilderness? David is the recipient of God's gracious providence. And this is glorious because Yahweh is ordering history and nations and peoples and armies all for the sake of David. What a good gift. And there's one last gift we need to look at. In the wilderness, God gives the best gift, his very goodness to David. And so we've looked at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, and now we can move into the middle of the chapter. And we need to think about David's emotional state, and it's hard to imagine David's emotional state so much going on in David's life. He's enduring the hostility of Saul. He's running and fleeing. There's all of these betrayals. There's secrecy and there's spying and there's double agents. And I don't think it would be wrong to picture David at the point of despair in verse 23. I don't think it would be wrong to picture David with racing anxiety, losing sleep, filled with doubt, battling even grief here. But what happens? In the middle of the chapter, in the depths of the wilderness, in all of this turmoil, David finds a friendly face, and that friendly face is the son of Saul, Jonathan. Jonathan comes to David, and what he does is he strengthens David's hand in God, and that's what David needed. And we don't have to wonder how da Jonathan did this for David. This wasn't some mystical thing that Jonathan did for David. The text explains how this works. Jonathan starts speaking to David, and he says this, do not fear. Why? 
For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. You see what Saul's doing, or what's, what Jonathan's doing for David. His work is so simple, it's so profound. He is taking the promises of God, and he's applying them to the heart of David. This was the, the promise of God from, from David's anointing. You shall be king over Israel. And Jonathan, this good friend, is taking that truth and he's pushing it into the heart of David. And what we see is this is how it works in the Christian life. You want to strengthen your brother, your sister in the Lord. How do you do it? Well, you take the promise of God and you begin to push it into their heart. And it works. And so we can see here in chapter 23, we can see the goodness of God. Just meditate on this. God doesn't leave David to his own devices. The emotional darkness is creeping in on David. The despair and the anxiety, the doubt and the grief, all of it, they want to consume and take control of David's soul. If you've been there in that kind of turmoil, you know what's going on with David. All of these things want to take ownership of you. The Lord is so gracious and kind, and he intervenes right in the right time. The Lord sends Jonathan, and through the words of Jonathan, as Jonathan repeats the promise of God, you shall be king, the Lord uses those words and in strength, strength to the, the soul of David. We see it. What is Yahweh doing in the wilderness? He is giving his very goodness to his servant, David. And so as we look at these three gifts revealed in the wilderness, we can say something about God, can't we? We can say, God is the great gift giver. There is no one like him. He meets his people in the wilderness and he pours out goodness. He arranges history. He gives wisdom to those who need it. And as we think about it, we can see why David wrote these words of Psalm 54. We can understand why he would wrote, write this song for the people of God that they would worship with it and that they would all learn to say this, Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is the upholder of my life. What a glorious song to sing. And David wanted everyone to sing it. And as we think about that truth, even more as we think about all that we have seen in chapter 23, there are all sorts of lessons for us to learn. They just kind of just spill out of the text on us. So think about the gift of wisdom for me. What does the gift of wisdom teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us a very simple lesson. Brother, sister, don't be like Saul. Don't be like Saul. What does that mean? Well, don't presume to know the mind of the Lord. Don't presume that you have penetrated Yahweh's mind. Even more, don't live in a delusion, believing you can attach the name of the Lord to your desires, your dreams, and pass it off with that stamp. That's what Saul was doing. God has given David into my hand. Rubber stamp, this is good. Don't be like Saul. Instead, humble yourself like David. Seek the face of the Lord, knowing that your heavenly Father loves to give wisdom to those who ask, and that he will not withhold his wisdom for those who seek him earnestly and diligently. The gift of wisdom is teaching us, don't be like Saul. And said, humble yourself before the Lord. Well, what do we learn from the gift of providence? Well, we learn this, that we must trust in the providence of God. 
is we must know that the Lord is the sovereign king and he rules and he reigns over absolutely everything that he has made and he does what he wants with it. And no one, not even Saul himself, can resist the powerful will of Yahweh. Saul's soul bends under the power of Yahweh. So what does that mean? Well, Christian, you must trust that God is orchestrating all things for your great good in Jesus Christ. That's what this lesson is teaching us. So child of God, reckon everything in your life by faith to the providence of God. That means from the small annoyances that you face in your life, a broken down car, a broken fridge, reckon that to the providence of God, that this is for my good in Jesus Christ. Even more, reckon all of the soul-shattering things in your life to the providential ordering of God. Being betrayed by those you come to save. Being betrayed by the Ziphites. What you need to do is take that by faith to the providence of God and entrust yourself to the providence of God. And how can we do this? It seems like a big ask, doesn't it? Well, we do it because we know two things. We know that our God is the sovereign God. He rules over all things. Even more, we know that the sovereign God is the God who loves us. And so when we know that our God is the sovereign God ruling and reigning over everything and that he, he loves us, we take everything happening in our lives and we reckon it by faith to the providential ordering of God, knowing this is all for my good. I don't see it. I can't understand it. But I'm going to believe it. What do we learn from God's goodness? Well, we must remember that God will never leave us. And so, Christian, hear this. If you are in Christ Jesus today, God will never leave you. The anxiety might rage. The doubts may assault you. You might find yourself in the middle of the wilderness of Ziph, and all the Ziphites are around you, spying on you and betraying you so that your enemy might hunt you down. You might be in all of this, but you have to remember God meets his people in the wilderness, and he will not leave them alone. There is David in the middle of chapter 23, just betrayed by, by the city of Keilah. He saved them. There is David. He is suing and be betrayed again. And what does the Lord do in the middle of these two betrayals? He sends Jonathan and he strengthens him with the grace that he needs. And so, child of God, believe this, that God will bring by some means or another, perhaps this very sermon today, his promises to bear upon your heart so that you might continue to live by faith. And his grace in that moment, you have to trust, will be enough. It will be exactly what you need in the wilderness. Because God is good. And he always meets his people with goodness in the wilderness. And brothers and sisters, as we walk with God through these different wilderness experiences, as we taste his gifts, we will learn to speak like David. We will say, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Chapter 23 is so rich. The lessons just keep flowing out of it. We keep, could go on and on and on learning from chapter 23. But I haven't told you the most important lesson. And this is how I want to end. This story of chapter 23 is ultimately a story of the anointed Lord, of the Lord. It's ultimately a story about the Messiah. And while we can take bits and pieces about, from this story and apply it to our lives, 
We have to say as we understand the Bible and as the Bible presents itself to us, chapter 23 is ultimately a story about King Jesus. So brothers and sisters, hear the good news of the gospel and I command you to believe it with all of your heart. Like David, the Lord Jesus was thrust into a deep and wild wilderness. And we know the story of Jesus. He went without bread for 40 days being tempted by Satan himself. We have to understand that Jesus' wilderness experience was was more than 40 days. Jesus' wilderness experience was from the day of his birth to the very day of his death when he was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. And during this journey, Jesus faced every sort of discouragement and trouble known to man. He was a man troubled. He was troubled by the faithlessness of his generation. He was a man who experienced agitation. He was betrayed by his very own friend. He was hunted by his enemies. He was ground down by the insult of all the high priests and religious leaders of his day. We have to understand this. We have to understand that Jesus was fully human. He was like us in every respect except for sin. And this applies to the emotional life of Jesus. Jesus experienced the the whole gamut, the whole emotional range. Jesus' soul was agitated. Jesus' soul was was pushed into a, a deep despondency. Grief gripped his heart. Rightly, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was a, a man of sorrows. But know this. In the midst of this wilderness journey, Jesus did this. He went again and again to his Father. Where do we find him throughout his ministry? Alone by himself, seeking his Father's face. We find him speaking of the will and good pleasure of the Lord. Throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus entrusts himself to the providential ordering of God. It is the will of God. It is necessary, Jesus says, again and again and again. And what do we find him doing? We find him rejoicing in the goodness of God throughout his ministry. And as we study the Gospels, we get this glorious picture that while Jesus was in the wilderness, his whole ministry, Jesus was met with the good gifts of God. The Father did not withhold his wisdom from his Son, nor his providence, nor his goodness, but he lavishly poured out these gifts upon Jesus without measure through the Holy Spirit. And so what is the call then? The call is so simple. Christian, put your hope in the Messiah. Put your hope in the Messiah who went into the deep and dark wilderness for you and your salvation. Even more, put your hope in the God who met the Messiah in the wilderness, pouring out gift after gift after gift upon his son. And Christian, do not fail to do this. Take this Jesus as your appointed portion today, for he is your gift to be received. He is the gift of God that will sustain you in your wilderness journey. For in him you will find all that you need. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give thanks for this chapter. It is a good and excellent chapter, and we need all of the practical lessons from it. We don't want to be like Saul. We want to be like David. Father, we want to be a people of faith, trusting that you are ordering all things for our good, even when it doesn't feel like it. Father, we want to be a people who wait, continually wait to find your goodness. And so, Father, we pray, would you change our hearts? 
even more, would you cause us to look at Jesus, your son, today? For he is our salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.